G'day everyone, happy Easter. Keep your Bibles open there, I'll lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful message of Easter. First of all, the message of Good Friday, that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to die for our sins so that we might know your forgiveness. But now we thank you for Easter Day, for the wonderful news that Christ is risen. So we pray that you'll help us to understand not just that wonderful fact, but what it means for us that Jesus is the risen Lord and Saviour. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I think I was back in about first or second year at uni, which is many years ago for me, uh, I got the chance to go to America and uh, I really wanted to see the Grand Canyon, but it wasn't on the itinerary that I had. Uh, And so uh, I was working at the time. I called myself a fabric dispersion officer. I delivered dry cleaning. Uh, and uh, I didn't earn very much money, so I saved up, and then I, uh, I bit the bullet, and I paid all this money to fly on a little plane to go and see the Grand Canyon. Uh, but from the moment I got to the airport, I was regretting it, because I, already, I hate flying in little planes. Like, I, I get seasick on, like, a, a cruise liner, you know, so you can imagine what I'm like in a light plane. But as we get to the airport, and as we go to get on the plane, there are only about six passengers, and we all had to be weighed before we got on the flight. Uh, and they did that, and then they allocated each of us individual seats. So, you know, you sit over there, and he's about your size, he'll sit over there, and she sits over there. And as I say, I'm already not a good flyer, so I'm thinking, this must be really dicey if it really matters where you sit. Uh, then, though, as we rolled out on the runway, one of the other passengers had a full-on panic attack. And they actually stopped the plane, and they brought the, the stairs over, and he got off. Uh, so already, I'm now thinking, why don't I have a panic attack? I might be able to get off, you know, I, I'm even worse. But what, what really got me was, he was a really big guy. I mean, glass houses and all that, but, but he was a, a, a very, very big guy. And they didn't reallocate the seats. So I'm sitting there thinking, there's 120 kilos just gone from the right wing, you know, and, and you're not moving anyone. But no, so we take off. And I am just sitting there in absolute fear, and and we didn't crash, amazingly, and I'm just spending all my energy focusing on the seat in front of me, praying, concentrating, I'm not being ill, to be truthful, but I'm thinking, this is going to be worth it when we fly over the Grand Canyon and we see this uh, amazing sight. Then, though, as we get to the Grand Canyon, it was like the plane starts going like this, which is already bad for me, and we fly over, and the the pilot comes over the, uh, the loudspeaker and says... Uh, actually, it's the worst weather conditions you can have for the Grand Canyon today. The weather has, has set in. And so as you look out the window, you just couldn't see a thing. There was cloud the whole way down, not just to the ground, but down into the canyon below the ground. You couldn't tell where the ground was, where the sky was. Uh, it was just awful. And so anyway, we land and we, uh, they say, oh, look, there's really bad visibility today. What a surprise. And, and, and they say, but we're going to take you to the IMAX theatre we have here so you can see a movie about the Grand Canyon. So at this point, I think I can do that at Darling Harbour. Why did I come all this way to do that? I spent all this money to nearly die on a plane to watch a movie. Uh, so as we get to the... He then says, all right, we're now going to take you to the lookout after we've watched the movie. And when you get there, I was just very thankful there were railings because you could not tell where the edge was. It was that thick, the cloud... And then as we stood there, this little breeze started up and it was like the the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, And suddenly it was just there in front of you and you you could see this incredible Grand Canyon. If you've never seen it in person, pictures don't do it justice. It really is amazing. And then to top it off, snow started to fall. 
And I, I've, I'd never seen snowfall before. You know, I come from Queensland. I mean, you don't have a lot of snow up there. But, uh, you know, and so suddenly all of these people, well, there were five of us, but that's probably because one guy got off. But the five, we, we had bonded over our grumbling. You know, when you, when you, people who complain together stay together, you know, that sort of idea. But we'd bonded over our, our grumbling. But suddenly now we would have paid double for, for what we got to see. And this change that happened from disaffected grumblers to awe-inspired praises was amazing, just because we got to see this incredible sight. In a very small way, that was something of the change from Good Friday to Easter Sunday for the disciples of Jesus. See, we, we know the end of the story. We've got the, the benefit of hindsight, if you like. We know Jesus' death was good. We, we now call it Good Friday. So if you were here on Good Friday, you heard the wonderful news that Jesus was not just dying, he was dying for our sin. He was dying in your place so that you could be forgiven. He was dying to take the punishment of God that we deserve. But at that moment, the, the disciples hadn't grasped that wonderful truth yet. Uh, and so by the end of that Friday afternoon, the disciples are, are devastated. See, all their hopes and dreams, they had invested everything in Jesus. Remember, they'd left their jobs to follow him. They've invested everything in Jesus. They are devastated. It was all for nothing. And so at this point, by the Friday afternoon, every one of them, even Peter, the, the number one disciple, every one of them had deserted Jesus. Every one of them had run away and they were hiding in locked rooms waiting for the Romans to come and arrest them. They were thinking, I wonder if we're going to get crucified like Jesus was. But then came the, the parting of the clouds, if you like. The Sunday arrived, the day that didn't just change the disciples and turn them into this incredible force that changed history. It was actually the day that changed the world. Uh, and that's why Easter Sunday, even more than Christmas morning, Christmas morning gets all the focus, but Easter Sunday is the greatest day of the year. And it's the day we celebrate as Christians because Christ is risen. So let's turn to the story. Let's turn to Matthew's gospel. We've been reading through over like six or seven weeks now and getting right to the end of the story. But come with me. You'll want it in front of you. So if you didn't get a Bible before, put up your hand and Wendy will get you one. We're actually picking it up still on the Friday evening. So my first heading is the burial and that's chapter 27 verses 57 to 66. So by late in the, on the Friday afternoon, Jesus is dead. It actually surprised them that he died so quickly. Usually people hang around a bit longer on the cross uh, and usually the Romans left the bodies hanging there for days because it was an incredible deterrent. You see, it was a horrific way of showing other people that is what will happen to you if you disobey. That is what will happen to you if you dare to speak against Rome, seeing these dead bodies hanging on a tree exposed to the elements. And then it would be after a few days that the body would be taken down and just thrown in an unmarked grave. That was part of the, the, the ignominy of it, part of, of what it did to you. But for a Jewish person, this was even worse because under their law, you had to be buried before sunset. If you know a Jewish person, if you've ever been to a Jewish funeral, it happens very soon after the person dies. It doesn't happen like a week later, like often. It's, it's the next day. Because to be left hanging on that cross overnight was to be cursed under their law. And that was going to be Jesus' fate until in steps this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. And here we're told he was a rich man, which explains how he would have owned a cave tomb in Jerusalem. That wasn't a very common thing. Uh, in the other Gospels, we're told he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That means he was part of the court who condemned Jesus to die. 
But at some point, Joseph has changed his mind from condemning Jesus and he's become a secret, I don't think he was a public yet, but a secret disciple of Jesus. And I wonder if it was as he watched Jesus facing all those injustices, you know, as they put a crown of thorns on his head and as they whipped him and as they slapped him, I wonder if he started to think about all the prophecies in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, where it talked about God's suffering servant who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter but would not open his mouth. But however it was it happened, see, even as a secret disciple of Jesus, he wasn't going expecting a miracle. He wasn't going to Pilate asking for the body, expecting to see Jesus come back to life. He's just wanting to show his respect for the man who he'd come to admire. He just wants to give him a proper burial. This would have taken incredible courage. This guy is a hero. This would have taken incredible courage to stand up at this point and do what he did. To go and ask Pilate, the Roman governor, wasn't renowned for his, his even temper, if you like, to ask him for the body. But worse than that, it was saying to all the other Jewish leaders, everyone else he knows, I am with the one you despise. It's actually taking incredible courage. And it seems like Joseph thought, if I, if I failed Jesus before by not standing up for him while he was alive, I'm not going to fail him now that he's dead. And the only other people there, do you notice, are not any of the 12, it's not Peter, it's not John. The only other ones left are a couple of the women, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, not Jesus' mother, but the mother of some of the other disciples. And I think you've got to really admire Joseph and these women. Uh, they alone were willing to stand up and say, we are still with Jesus. And even if only in a small way, I think they're a lesson to us, are we willing to stand up and say, I'm with Jesus, even when it's not popular to say that. But it brings us to the second part of the story, the guarded tomb. This is verses 62 to 66. As I say, if Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus, the rest of the Jewish leaders still hated Jesus uh, and they knew that Jesus had talked about rising from the dead. No one believed he'd do it, but they were worried that disciples might come and steal the body and make up stories and all that sort of stuff. So look with me at verse 62. It says, The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now, you might have missed this while we were reading this, but there's this incredible irony there, and it's their hypocrisy. The next day was the Sabbath. Now, Jews were not meant to do anything on the Sabbath. And one of the reasons they put Jesus to death was, for, dis for what they said, was disobeying the Sabbath. Because remember, he'd crushed a head of grain and eaten some of the wheat on the Sabbath. Well, here they are, and they are engaging in political lobbying on the Sabbath. This is sinful human hypocrisy at its best. Even ScoMo and Mr Albanese said, we're not going to campaign today on Easter Sunday. But these guys, nothing like that. And so what they do, they go to Pilate, they ask for a guard for the tomb and he gives them one. And the point is, Jesus is dead. There's no, oh, he might have, you know, gone unconscious and woke up later. There's none of that. that. That's not a possibility. Jesus was dead. He's been put in a cave tomb, a stone, a massive stone was rolled across the entrance. Roman soldiers are guarding the tomb. There is just no way anyone is getting that body out of that tomb. Which brings us to the Sunday, my next heading the Sunday morning. So early on the Sunday morning, we're told the same two Marys went to go and view the tomb. Now understand, they are not going with hope in their hearts. They're not going thinking, I wonder if Jesus is going to rise from the dead. They are going there to weep. They're going there to mourn, to cry. 
their teacher, their Lord, had been put to death on the Friday and now on the Sunday morning, notice, they observed the Sabbath, unlike the Jewish leaders, they were going to say goodbye. Sometimes people think people back then in the ancient world were gullible, not like us rational, modern Western people who read horoscopes in the newspaper. (laughs) Death was just as permanent then as it is now. And in fact, they knew that truth better than we do because we've sanitised death. We've pushed it out to the, the hospitals and so forth. They were confronted by death every day. They knew dead people don't come back. But as they stood there crying, something incredible happened. Look at now how it describes it in verses 2 and 3. It says, Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The, the toughened Roman guards, they didn't know what was happening. But what they did know is this is scary. And it seems they fainted with fear. It says they became like dead men. And that is the normal reaction when people come face to face with an angel in the Bible. See, we we have this picture of angels as chubby little kids with wings and and all that sort of stuff. Angels make people drop dead with fear. They are are like... Did anyone remember that that, uh, TV series of the Bible that they did a few years ago? It was by the makers of Survivor, which I thought was interesting. But anyway, uh, anyone remember seeing that? It was on Channel 9. And they are the one time where they got it right. They made the angels sort of dressed like ninjas with massive swords and, and that sort of idea. That's closer than most people get to a picture of an angel. Uh, But here are the women, they're staring at an empty tomb with an angel sitting on the stone that had covered the entrance. And then the angel speaks and he says, perhaps, I think, the most amazing words that have ever been said. Look at verse 5. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid. That's not the amazing bit, but it always makes me laugh because, of course, they're afraid. They're staring at an angel and the Roman guards are lying there like dead men, you know. But anyway, going on, he says, don't be afraid. Because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. And that is the most amazing words ever said. Jesus is not here because he is risen. See, Jesus had told them all, I will be killed and then I'll rise from the dead. And none of them knew what he meant because they hadn't comprehended it. But whatever it meant, it couldn't mean that he'd rise from the dead because dead people don't come back. But now it had happened. And the angel knows they'll be sceptical. Look, he says, come and have a look. He says, come and see the place where the body was. And the tomb was empty. That fact of history, that the tomb was empty, that fact has confounded critics for 2,000 years. If you look down to verses 11 to 15, look down to verses 11 to 15. You see, the Jewish religious establishment had to deal with that fact. There was an empty tomb. So their way of dealing was that they bribed the soldiers, they spread the story, that the the disciples had stolen the body because the incontrovertible fact was the tomb was empty. Otherwise, they would have just taken people to the tomb and said, look, they're just making it up. That's where his body is. And Christianity would have died out then and there. And of course, they never could produce a stolen body. Again, if they had, Christianity would have died out like the thousands of other Jewish offshoot religions that sprung up for a short time and then died out but they could never produce the body. And not only could they not produce the body, more than that, people kept coming out and saying, we have seen Jesus alive. 
And more than that, those eyewitnesses refused to recant. Even when they were put to death, as nearly all the first Christians were, even when they were put to death, they died saying, Jesus is risen, I have seen him, and I would rather die than say otherwise. Interesting, I talk to people sometimes who say, I wish I had your faith. I want to believe, I wish I could believe, and my my answer is you can if you will just genuinely look at the evidence. See, for me, I looked at the evidence around that time I went to America that I was talking about. I was a young uni student, and I decided that actually, historically, there is no other explanation than that Jesus had risen from the dead. See, no one can ever prove 100% that any event happened in history. You have to trust me that I went to the Grand Canyon. I can't prove it to you. I couldn't even find a photo of it when I went to look. See, that's why there are people who refuse to believe that man walked on the moon. There are people who say, oh, actually, it was in a sound studio in, in, in LA and it's all a, a lie. Because if you weren't there and you didn't see it, you can't prove it 100%. That's not how history works. So what you do is you rely on others who were there and you rely on the trustworthiness or otherwise of their evidence. So I cannot prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead, but I can say There is so much evidence available to you to make a rational decision if you will just look at it with open eyes. If this is an issue for you, there are great books that present the evidence for the resurrection. Ask me and I'll lend you one. In fact, I I actually gave away my copies this morning to people who were here at church, but I'll give them to you when they get back, when they give them back to me. But as one of America's great early legal minds said, and I've got it on the screen, He said, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection than for just about any other event in history. The reality is that tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. But back to the story. Come with me to the women at the tomb. They looked at it. They saw it was empty. And then the angel said to them, don't hang around. Go and tell the others. Tell them to head up to Galilee. Jesus will meet you there. And we'll look at that final meeting with his disciples next Sunday. So come back next Sunday for the last bit of the story. But as the women were leaving, something wonderful happened. They met the risen Jesus. Look at verse 9. It says, just then Jesus met them and said, good morning. I always think that's a bit of an anticlimax, you know, but good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Just a wonderful scene, isn't it? Just by the way, the fact that the first two people to see Jesus alive were two women is actually quite incredible. Uh, in the ancient world, the testimony of women was irrelevant. It, it, you, if, you had, if the witness was a woman, it didn't count. It had no legal standing. It's not right, it's just the way it was. It's the way it was basically in every culture until the coming of Christianity, interestingly. It's Christianity that said men and women are equal in God's eyes. That's what actually changed the world in that sense. But the point here is, if someone was making this up, they would never have written it like this. You would never have made Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of some obscure disciple. You would never have made them the witnesses. You would have made up impressive witnesses, definitely men. But they wrote this because this is what happened. Now here in Matthew's Gospel, the story is rightly focused on the facts of the resurrection. I'm trying to say to you, this is what happened. The fact is, Jesus is alive. See, it's the rest of the New Testament that explains the significance of the resurrection, that explains what this means for us, that Jesus is risen. Now, we could talk for hours on that, but I'm only going to focus on two things as we finish. 
And the first is this, Jesus' resurrection declares that he is the Son of God. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it'll come up on the screen. There we go, getting there, there we are. It says, Jesus has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness. See, the resurrection is God's final word to us saying, this man is who he claims to be. This man is the Son of God. If you want to know God, come to Jesus. He's the only way to the Father. And it was also God validating Jesus' death. It was God saying, his death has done what it is claimed to do. That is, it has paid for your sins. And the women got this straight away. Look again at verse 9. It says, they came up, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And that is actually the only right response to the risen Jesus, to worship him. The risen Jesus demands worship. Meeting him cannot leave you unchanged. See, if you like, Good Friday creates thankfulness in us. That's what Good Friday does. On Good Friday, we see God loved me. He was even willing to send his son to die in my place so that I could be forgiven. But Easter Sunday creates awe in us, creates worship in us. This truly is the risen Lord of the universe. All those years ago, when I got back on that plane at the Grand Canyon, I was pleased. I hadn't wasted my money. Uh, I got to see something incredible. But in the end, all it gave me was a memory. I couldn't even find the photo when I went to, to look for it this week. See, it didn't change me. Meeting the risen Jesus changes you. Because the only right response is to live your life to serve him. That is, to worship him. That's what it is to meet the risen Jesus. Secondly, and lastly, Jesus' resurrection gives us hope even beyond death. Death is the one great constant of life. Everyone dies. Hebrews 9, 27, look at what it says on the screen. It says, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That is our destiny as human beings. You might do some other things on the way, but in the end, that is our destiny. If we do not trust in Jesus, our end is death and judgment. But if we trust in Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus' resurrection guarantees your resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is what it calls the first fruits, the first of many. It guarantees that you too will be raised. The Bible says when Christ returns, we will be raised to life with Jesus. And we will be raised to live forever without sin and without suffering and without pain, and without sickness, and without disease, and even without death. And that is your hope if you are someone who trusts in Jesus. And because of that resurrection hope, we do not fear death like people without hope. Over the last few weeks, really sadly, I've had to take a load of funerals. I don't know why that is. I hadn't taken any for a long time. That's something I had to take, all these funerals. But the wonderful thing is, they were all for Christian people. And Christian funerals are different. I see it when I go to funerals where the people are not Christians, it's different. You see, you can actually tell the worthwhileness of a philosophy by whether it has anything to say when people are standing at the graveside. And when you go to a non-Christian, I don't care what religion or no religion at all, when you go there, there is no hope. But Christian funerals are so different. We grieve because death is awful. 
but we grieve with the certain hope that we will see our loved one again. Christian funerals are strange mixtures of sorrow and joy rather than despair. This is why Christian missionaries back 200 years ago went to, to West Africa in the 1800s and they packed all their gear, not in a suitcase, they packed it in a coffin because every one of them knew I'm going to die within five years of going there. And they said, I'm still going. Hundreds of young people went and did that with joy because they knew the hope of the resurrection. They said, England or wherever they came from is not my home. I've got a better home I'm looking forward to with the Lord Jesus. This is why Christians are sacrificial in their generosity towards other people. It's why Christians hang loosely to to their worldly possessions. This is why Christians can face suffering with pain and, uh, and pain with joy rather than with complaint. Because we can actually mock death. I love what the Apostle Paul says at the end of his great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. If you want something to read tonight, go home and read 1 Corinthians 15. Look what he says right at the end, chapter, uh, verse 54. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He, he's sort of like the sports person who at the end of the game when they've won is a bad winner and, and mocks the opposition. But that is what you can do as a Christian. We mock death like the opponent who's lost. You see, because Jesus has won the victory. And so my prayer for you is, and this is actually my prayer for every person I ever meet, my prayer for you is that this is your hope. I pray that you have come to know and worship the powerful Son of God who has risen from the dead. And so you have that wonderful, certain hope that you will be raised to live forever with him. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of Easter. First of all, of Good Friday, that you loved us so much that you sent your Son into the world to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. But especially today, we thank you for Easter Sunday, for the wonderful news that Christ is risen, that death has been defeated. And so we have that wonderful hope. And so we pray that each person here would know that hope as they put their trust in the risen Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.